Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 21, the book of Acts, chapter 9. We began Acts chapter 9 last week, but I purposefully postponed getting too deep into the scripture passages to instead focus our attention on the person of Paul, or better, Shoal, which was his given Hebrew name. Now, Paul is the English version of a Latin word. It's probably Paulus. And it, it seems that in general he used that name, Paul, and that name was used of him, when he was dealing either with Jews that were out in the diaspora or Gentiles who were subjects of the Roman Empire. Then dealing with Hebrews, he seems to mostly use Shoal, Saul in English. Now my reason for, for pausing at this point and delving deeper into Paul is that much of what will occur for the remainder of Acts will involve Paul to varying levels. There's no more misunderstood, misquoted, influential source for Christian doctrine than Paul. So it is vital that we do all we can to uncover what Paul intends to tell us. Yet we can, do, we, we can no more hope to understand what Paul meant by the things he did and he said in his many letters that dominate the New Testament than we can hope to understand what Homer meant by what he said in his great epic poems, the Iliad and, and the Odyssey, or by what Tolstoy said in War and Peace until we understand them as the unique individuals that they were who lived in a particular time in history and in the context of their culture, their language, their upbringing, their education, their life experiences. Every writer speaks from the position of their own particular worldview. The lens through which they see history and then happenings unfold and interpret them even if they weren't fully conscious of it. So to pretend as though Paul was a blank sheet of paper who didn't have a personal worldview, or that whatever he, it was that he wrote is so mysterious that it transcends whatever worldview he may or may not have held, is not only illogical, it makes him less than human. And for those theologians and Bible commentators who demand that Paul is culturally neutral or that his words have little or no connection to who he is as a human person, it's for no other reason than for that writer or translator to, to, to be fully freed to make whatever he or she wants to make out of Paul's words. So I've been putting together a picture for you of who the historical Paul is before we examine what he says, where he came from, what influenced his religious and societal thoughts and beliefs, and what the terms he regularly used meant to him. 
within the context of his particular Jewish experience. It is complicated because just like for anyone, we can't be entirely described and labeled according to only one aspect of our lives. We can no more fully describe Paul by using the term Jew and thus anticipate his actions and reactions and thought processes than we can fully describe a random person as a Christian and assume too much only from that. This becomes especially important when some of the most critical doctrines that are foundational to our faith as believers in Christ comes directly from the writings of Paul. Now, for those listeners who might think that what I'm covering is not something that anyone but a Bible academic needs to know, think again. For 21st century Western Gentiles, even though you might not realize it, Paul couldn't be more of a foreigner to us. So let's continue adding to Paul's biography. Pardon me. Now last time I said that Paul was originally a diaspora Jew who was born and he was raised at least for a time in Tarsus in the province of Cilicia. It was a large city. So Paul was anything but a country boy like Yeshua was. At some point he came to the Holy Land to live, to go to religious school. He came from a prestigious family who identified themselves as Pharisees. Something rather unusual when a Jewish family lived outside of the Holy Lands. The societal, political, religious divisions within Judaism that are represented by the parties of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes were mostly present in Judea. And the diaspora Jews didn't tend to divide themselves up and label themselves that way. In the diaspora, occupation, craft, social status, that usually determined which synagogue one might attend. Not so different really from modern Christianity, is it? Now it's significant that Paul was a Roman citizen. And it's another unusual status for a Jew. Not unheard of, but it's not typical. And this status was greatly advantageous for Shoal, bringing him credibility as well as affording him special rights. This further emphasizes the privileged life that he was born into and his ease of operating in both Jewish and Gentile uh, environments. Now, Paul was a Greek speaker as his first language. However, in order to attend the elite academy of Gamaliel in Jerusalem for his religious training, he had to be fluent in Hebrew and he had to be familiar with Aramaic. But even more, the academy of Gamaliel was so distinguished that in order for Paul to be a student, he would have had to demonstrate amazing potential as only a handful of the best and the brightest were admitted. What were those students taught? The Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and Halakha. That is, they were taught the scriptures and oral Torah traditions. 
We find Paul quotes Scripture dozens of times in his letters. So he knew his way around the Bible. However, just as it is in Christian institutions, it's not so much what the Bible actually says that matters as much as what the teacher says the Bible means by what it says. Put another way, Bible interpretation was the key. And the interpretations are what separated the various factions of Judaism from one another the same way that it separates the several thousand modern day Christian denominations from one another. And since Gamaliel was a Pharisee, and so was Paul even before coming to the Holy Land, then it was the biblical interpretations of the Pharisees, meaning the traditions of the Pharisees, that Paul learned. So I want to stress again, the world of the Pharisees was the synagogue. The world of the synagogue stressed oral Torah traditions. So Paul's thought processes, the very fiber of his understanding, was most influenced by halakha, which was the body of Jewish law that controlled everyday life for Jews. The temple and the priesthood, however, that was the world of the Sadducees. They stressed the Torah of Moses. They did not accept the halakha of the Pharisees. Of course, that means that they had their own interpretations of what the law of Moses meant by what it said, and it was in many important ways different from the interpretations of the Pharisees, and therefore often it was different from what was taught at the synagogues. So the temple and the synagogue were rivals in many respects. <clears throat> now, synagogues in the diaspora used the Greek Septuagint as their Bibles. The LXX, as it's called, Roman numerals for 70, was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Tanakh that had been created about 250 BC. Although in the Holy Land, some synagogues used the Hebrew Bible, the original Tanakh, depending on the affiliation of that synagogue. Now Paul would have been most familiar with the Greek Septuagint. Although born in Tarsus, Paul says in Acts 22 that he was brought up in Jerusalem. Luke says that at the time Paul was holding those cloaks for those who were stoning Stephen, he was a young man. A young man in that day was roughly between 24 to 40 years of age. So Paul had lived for some time in Jerusalem and was heavily indoctrinated in the type of Judaism that was present in the Holy Land, more so than the type of Judaism that was practiced in the foreign lands of the Jewish diaspora. So although Paul had been subject to, uh, subjected to Hellenist influences, Greek cultural influences early in his life, it would be quite incorrect to label Paul as a Hellenist Jew. And as an elite academic, he was familiar with both sides of the fence, so to speak. He was as comfortable among the Hebrew-speaking Jews as he was among the Hellenist, the Greek-speaking Jews. Now I'm going to stop here for now in describing the historical Paul by giving you an example 
of how knowing a person's worldview and culture and, and life context matters so much when interpreting what he or she has to say. I'm going to take this example not from Paul, but from his master, Yeshua. I do this for a couple of reasons. First of all, because we see that even Jesus Christ was not a blank slate. At least what we might characterize as the human attribute of him had a definite personal worldview and a life context we need to grasp so that we can correctly understand what he meant by what he said. After all, he was a rural Galilean Jew. He was a craftsman. And he communicated with and he lived among other blue-collar, everyday Jews. And the life context I want to highlight is that Yeshua's world was the world of the synagogue. It was not the world of the temple. And second, although he didn't belong to any party that we are aware of, it's my opinion that he was very likely closest in religious philosophy to that of the essence. Nonetheless, even though we are told that he had no formal religious training, it was the world of the synagogue that he lived in and he frequented, not the world of the temple. In fact, the New Testament record shows he only visited Jerusalem and the temple during the biblical feast days. That's that's the only time he went. And that was in order to obey the laws of Moses. Thus, he well knew the teachings of the rabbis. Now, he certainly didn't need training in the Word of God. He was the Word of God. The point is, he was quite familiar with the terms of the synagogue because that was part of standard everyday Jewish life. Now the example I want to give you comes from Yeshua's most famous and extensive speech, the Sermon on the Mount. And after after plainly and emphatically stating in Matthew 17 through 19 that he did not come to change or to abolish the law of Moses or of the prophets, so no one should interpret what he's saying in that light. Then in verse 21, we read this. You have heard that our fathers were told, do not murder and that anyone who commits murder will be subject to judgment. Okay. What a Jewish teacher, or rather, when a Jewish teacher or a rabbi is in a debate, a midrash, or he's instructing on the Torah. The first thing they say is what a prominent teacher or rabbi has previously said about a Bible passage. Christ says that what this crowd of Jews before him had been told by their earlier teachers of their fathers was do not murder because they'll be judged for it. But now, in typical rabbinical fashion, Christ gives his interpretation of the commandment to not murder. So in the next verse, Matthew 5.22, he says this, But I tell you that anyone who nurses anger against his brother will be subject to judgment, that whoever calls his brother you good for nothing will be brought before the Sanhedrin, that whoever says fool incurs the penalty of burning in the fire of Gehinnom. 
Now, for Yeshua's followers, this was Yeshua's oral Torah. His tradition about what the commandment to not murder means. And despite all the erroneous teachings we've heard, that essentially Christ lessened the restrictions of the commandment of Moses, thereby making it easier, less burdensome. In fact, we find he made them much stricter. Here, merely harboring anger, even just saying something unkind against a brother, meaning a fellow Hebrew, was considered to break the commandment against murder. A few verses later, we hear in Matthew 5.31, it was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a get. That's a divorce decree. So in the same familiar rabbinical format, Yeshua now discusses the hot topic of his day, divorce. And he begins by saying what has previously been declared by the earlier synagogue teachings about divorce, and it is that the wife must receive an official divorce decree, and if the husband will do that, then he meets all the requirements of the commandment. But then in the next verse, he says what his interpretation of the law of divorce is. In Matthew 5.32 he says, But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of fornication makes her an adulteress and that anyone who marries a divorcee commits adultery. So we see that just as with the topic of murder, Yeshua's interpretation about divorce was far stricter. See, the rather standard Christian teaching on this passage is that Yeshua was speaking against the law of Moses and essentially canceling the commandments from Mount Sinai, replacing them with his own commandments. Had you been a Jew in that day and regularly attended the synagogue, you would have heard this form of debate and teaching countless times. It in no way challenged or changed the law of Moses. It was simply an issue of how to correctly interpret the law of Moses. Now Paul, as a trained rabbi, also thought and spoke in the same usual customary way of rabbis. Thus, while to the uninitiated Gentile, Yeshua might sound as though he's setting up a new system of laws and speaking against the old system, but he's not, and he said he wasn't. So it is that that when we hear Paul speak about the law, even though it might seem so to Gentile ears, he's never talking against the law, but rather he's offering his interpretation of the law. And he is doing this in light of his own life experiences as a Pharisee, owing to his training at the Academy of Gamaliel, and now greatly influenced with the divine revelation of the risen Christ and what Christ's disciples taught him. What I'm telling you isn't speculation. It's just historical fact derived from a a number of reliable sources. You know, if you can get your mind to accept it, then reading Paul's letters changes dramatically. His attitude towards the law no longer seems negative at times. And some of the supposed contradictions that he occasionally seems to offer, just disappear 
suddenly everything he says comes right back into line with the Torah and with what Christ taught. We also see that while Paul is in no way repudiating or pulling away from Judaism, often he is arguing against many of the erroneous traditions of Judaism that were popular, but they were incorrect. So with that as our background today, let's get into the scripture passages of Acts chapter 9. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it will be on page uh, 1372. And we're just going to read the first 19 verses. Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Shaul, still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's Talmudim, disciples, went to the Kohen Hagadol, that's the high priest, and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damasek, Damascus, authorizing him to arrest any people that he might find, whether men or women, who belong to the way, and bring them back to Jerusalem. Now he was on the road and nearing Damascus when suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Shaul, Shaul! Why do you keep persecuting me? Sir, who are you? asked. I am Yeshua, and you are persecuting me. Get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you have to do. The men traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. They helped Shaul get up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. So leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damasek, Damascus. For three days he remained unable to see, and he neither ate nor drank. There was a disciple in Damascus, Hanania by name, and in a vision the Lord said to him, Hanania, And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to Straight Street, to Yehuda's, Judah's house. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Shaul, for he's praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Hananiah coming in and placing his hands on him to restore sight. But Hananiah answered, Lord, many have told me about this man, how much harm he's done to your people in Jerusalem. And here he has a warrant from the head priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, because this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Goyim, to the Gentiles even to their kings and to the sons of Israel as well, for I myself will show him how much he'll have to suffer on account of my name. So Hananiah left, he went into the house, placing his hands on him, and he said, Brother Shaul, the Lord Yeshua, the one who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. In that moment, something like scales fell away from Shaul's eyes, he could see again. He got up, was immersed, and then he ate some food and he regained his strength. <clears throat> Most commentators will refer to Acts 1 through 19 as the conversion of Paul. Nothing could be more misleading or inaccurate. And I'm sorry to say, well, I don't think it's meant that way. It's one of the most anti-Semitic Christian catchphrases one could ever use. In fact, Paul himself spoke out against the concept of conversion 
when a Jew or a Gentile comes to faith in Christ. I've spoken against the use of the term conversion. All that word entails, I'm not going to repeat that teaching, but I'll briefly summarize it. In the dictionary, and certainly in the sense of the word as we think of it today, to convert means to metamorphose. It means to become something entirely different. A caterpillar will convert, metamorphose, to a butterfly, and then all traces of that caterpillar have disappeared. An entirely new creature has emerged. Paul did not metamorphose from a Jewish caterpillar to a Christian butterfly. Paul turned. And we talked about that several weeks ago. That is the actual Greek word. Turned. That is, he turned away from the wrong interpretations of the law and the prophets and he turned towards the right interpretations. He turned away from rejecting Yeshua as the Messiah that the law and the prophets pointed to and he turned towards accepting him not only as Savior, but as God. Paul did not become a new creature. He's simply the same creature with a new understanding. He did not cease being a Jew and instead become a Gentile. He did not stop obeying the law of Moses and start obeying a new set of laws that Yeshua supposedly created. He did not renounce Judaism and adopt Christianity. He did not stop going to the temple or to the synagogue and instead become a churchgoer. So, my name for Acts 9, 1-19 is the turning of Saul. Now the chapter opens with Saul's condition before he turns. He is working furiously to stamp out this new sect of Judaism that calls itself the Way. And Paul is not intending to personally murder anyone. That wasn't his job. He was an academic. But no doubt, as with Stephen, he was hoping that by ferreting out and arresting Yeshua's followers, that the result would be the same. Thus in verse 2 we find that Paul goes to the high priest, he asks for letters of authorization to the synagogue leaders to identify and hand over to Paul anyone in their congregations that might be Yeshua sympathizers. Why go to the high priest for permission? Because the high priest was the head of the Sanhedrin and Paul was operating in some kind of official capacity for the Sanhedrin. And why go to the synagogues? Because especially in the diaspora, the synagogue functioned the way churches do today in rural settings. That is, they are typically the local meeting place. They're the town hall and the sanctuary all rolled into one. The synagogue was the social and religious hub of the Jewish communities operating in foreign lands and this represented around 95% of all living Jews. This also shows that even though there was a separation of authority structure and operation between the temple and the synagogue, that since the Sanhedrin was, after all, the Jewish high court, the head of the Jewish high court was the high priest, then the temple, of course, had authority in a certain sense over the synagogue and and those who attended. Thus we find Paul on the road to Damascus with a letter in hand, a letter of authority to round up believers 
in any of the several synagogues that were there. Damascus was in Syria, part of the Roman Empire. But of course, it lay outside the Holy Land. Since the believers of Jerusalem fled after the execution of Stephen, no doubt it was these fugitives that Paul was searching for. It was a 130 mile journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. Somewhere along the route, Paul was confronted by God, or better, by Yeshua in spirit. Bright light burst forth from the sky. So terrifying and sudden that Paul fell to the ground in fright. A voice rang out from the clouds. It asked Paul why he was persecuting him. Actually, Luke says the words from heaven said, Shaul, not Paul, indicating that the language Saul heard was Hebrew. Shaul, of course, is puzzled. He's confused. He asks, who is it that's speaking to him? The voice says, Yeshua. Clearly, the point of Yeshua identifying himself with the persecuted believers is to show full solidarity with them. But it also makes the point that from the divine perspective, to, to reject and to persecute a worshiper of Messiah because they are doing the will of Messiah is the same as rejecting and persecuting the Messiah himself. Our complete Jewish Bible is correct to say that Paul's response was, Sir, who are you? Unlike most versions that say, Lord, who are you? When Shaul responded, he was not meaning Lord in the sense of Lord God because he didn't know that yet but rather in the sense of addressing a person of authority. So sir carries the best meaning. Yeshua responded by telling Paul to get up from the ground and complete his journey to Damascus. But when he got there, someone would be sent to meet him with further instructions. Verse 7 explains that Paul had companions that were traveling with him. They saw the light. They heard the voice. But they saw no one who was speaking. They were frozen with fear. They could say nothing. But Shaul, he was blind. Now it wasn't the intensity of the light that blinded him. Or the other men would have been blinded as well. Nor was Paul being punished for not believing. Might his visual blindness be a living metaphor that exposed his spiritual blindness? Yes, I think so. There were much earlier events in Israel's history that essentially accomplished the same thing. One was when Miriam spoke out against her brother Moses and questioned his authority. She instantly broke out in Sarat, uh, unclean skin disease that's divinely caused. Thus, Miriam's spiritual health was revealed. She was spiritually unclean on the inside even though she looked so pious on the outside. Shaul's companions had to lead him by the hand the remainder of the journey to Damascus and he stayed blind for, for a time after he arrived. And during that time it says he neither eats nor drinks. Well look, he was blind. He wasn't ill. So very likely he was fasting after realizing he had encountered God. 
And because of Christ's instructions, he knew he was about to hear more from God through somebody else. Fasting to prepare for God's oracle was biblical and it was invariably accompanied with prayer. Now there was a particular disciple of Christ in Damascus named Hanania. Now Hanania is a Hebrew name. So this person was a Jew originally from the Holy Land. Likely one of the fugitives that Paul was seeking to arrest. The Lord comes to Hanania in a vision and he calls his name and Hanania replies, Behold, here I am, Lord. Now it's interesting. We won't find the word behold in the complete Jewish Bible, but it ought to be there because the Greek says idu, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word hineni. And hineni is a word that that characterizes obedience, attentiveness, a readiness to act with zeal upon whatever comes next. It's often associated with God's prophets. God tells Hinanya to go to a certain house and ask about a man from Tarsus. And that this man will be praying. This ties in with Shaul fasting. And while praying, God has readied Paul for this encounter by means of a vision of Hananiah coming to him, laying hands on him and restoring his sight. But Hananiah was skeptical of Yeshua's instruction to go to Paul because Paul's mission to harm believers was well known. Yeshua doesn't chastise Hananiah because he knows things Hananiah doesn't. So he patiently explains that Paul has been chosen for a special mission, and that will be to carry the good news to Gentiles, to Gentile kings, even to the sons of Israel. Now this reference to the sons of Israel, that means the diaspora Jews who are living among the Gentiles, but no doubt it's also meant to include that scattered ten tribes of Israel, most of whom had forgotten their Hebrew heritage. But more, Yeshua tells Hanania that Paul is going to find out that this mission is going to require great suffering. And indeed it did. As Paul, for example, says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll just read it for you. This is taken from verses 24 to 28. Five times I received forty lashes less one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. And in my many travels I have been exposed to danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the desert, danger at sea, danger from false brothers... I have toiled, I've endured hardship, often not had enough sleep, been hungry and thirsty, frequently gone without food, been cold and naked. And besides these external matters, then there is the daily pressure of my anxious concern for all the congregations. Think you had it hard? One can only imagine what was going through Hanania's mind as he contemplated Christ's words that Paul was going to take this Jewish gospel to the Gentiles? This had to be perhaps the most incomprehensible, probably the most upsetting part of what he heard in this vision. Why would Gentiles want a Jewish Messiah? Why would the Jews want to share their Messiah with Gentiles, with their oppressors? Think about that. 
Nonetheless, Hanani obeyed and he went and he laid his hands on Paul. Paul's sight returned. His blessing upon Shaul was in the name of Yeshua, the same one who took Paul's sight away just a few days earlier. But now comes an issue that we discussed a couple lessons ago. Hananiah's laying on of hands also resulted in Paul receiving the Holy Spirit. So, we are left to assume that Paul had already come to believe in Yeshua, although we're not directly told so. Probably that occurred during his prayer and his fasting. So sometime after coming to faith, but before immersion, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell Paul. But only with the laying on of hands. And along with the indwelling of the Spirit comes his healing. My conviction is that the end of his physical blindness was quite real and it was a living witness to the end of his spiritual blindness. Otherwise, the physical blindness doesn't seem to have had any real discernible purpose. We discussed the issue of this connection between faith, baptism, and the Holy Spirit at length in earlier lessons, but the point I just want to draw today is that while Christian denominations will often insist upon a certain authorized sequence of how and when baptism and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit must happen and does happen. In fact, what we've seen up to now in the book of Acts, and we'll see more of in coming chapters, is there is no consistent divine formula or sequence. It can happen any number of ways. Sometimes long intervals can happen between steps. Sometimes it all happens immediately. Sometimes it involves the intervention of another. Sometimes it happens in private. The Lord is sovereign. He will deal with us as individuals and on His own terms. The healing Paul experiences is though scales fell from his eyes. There's no reason to take this as an expression. Some kind of a flaky substance literally covered over his eyes for several days and then all at once fell off. The healed saved, prepared Paul is now ready for God to begin to mold him and shape him. Paul ends his fast. He begins eating and drinking again to regain his strength. Let's read just a little bit more of Acts chapter 9. Get back to Acts chapter 9. We're going to start on page 1373. We're just going to read three or four verses. Starting at verse 19. Shaul spent some days with the disciples in Damascus and immediately he began proclaiming in the synagogues that Yeshua is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. They asked, isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was trying to destroy the people who call call in this name? In fact, isn't that why he came here to arrest and bring them back to the head priest? But Shaul was being filled with more and more power and he was creating an uproar among the Jews living in Damascus with his proofs that Yeshua is the Messiah. Quite some time later, the non-believing Jews gathered together and made plans to kill him. We're told that Paul 
spent some time with the disciples in Damascus. No doubt mostly meaning he lodged with them while he was there. And immediately he went to the synagogues to preach Yeshua as the Son of God. Immediately is Eutheos in Greek. And we should be careful as to the intensity that the word immediately we usually find in English in our Bibles has to our minds in in a a modern English sense immediately in typical modern day use has the sense of something being hurried or urgent or nearly instant rather the word eutheos more has the correct sense of forthwith or directly simply meaning there was nothing of any note that occurred in between two events and not very much time passed So the first thing Paul did after hanging out with the disciples for a few days was to go speak in the synagogues. No doubt during that time, he and the disciples discussed theology and halakha, and this gave Paul time to digest everything that had happened in these last few amazing days. But note where it is that Paul went. Where did he go? The synagogues. Why? Because that's where the Jews would be. So even though the bulk of Paul's mission would be to the Gentiles, first he goes to the Jews. And we're told that Shaul taught that Yeshua was the Son of God, which is interesting. Because we might think that we would find those words that Paul taught are that Yeshua is Messiah, Mashiach. Let's not just glide right by what Paul taught, what he first taught. This is important. Hang in there with me. Son of God was not just a term that Yeshua seemed to favor to describe himself along with the Son of Man. But see, it had a very definite meaning in the world of Judaism, and especially if one was a Pharisee, which of course Paul was. Son of God was a term that we find in the Old Testament and it refers to the entire line of kings coming from King David. However, some of the Psalms, such as 110, nuance this term to give it a definite messianic tone. Thus, in early biblical usage, Son of God did not have any sense that a Davidic king was deity. Rather, it is that since God was supposed to be Israel's king, but long ago Israel had demanded a human king, to rule over them, then the human king was supposed to be God's agent or his under-shepherd on earth, so to speak. The human king of Israel was to operate in a Torah-based, godly manner, behaving more as a servant to his people than as a superior, self-serving ruler that was typical of Gentile kings. But God was to rule over the king, and the king was to accept that. And King David is said to have exemplified this as God's servant, shepherd, king. Thus when Paul preached Yeshua as son of God, it would have been little different had he preached King David as son of God. By Paul's day, the Pharisees were teaching that a Messiah in the mold of King David was coming. They were not at all expecting this new King David to be anything other than a normal flesh and blood human being. So since King David himself was called a son of God,
by the Lord, then the strongest part of the reference is the king part. The God part meant that this king was God authorized and he was under the rule of God. So when Paul preached Yeshua as the son of God, it mostly meant that Yeshua was God's anointed king who had come from King David's line. And since the halakha of the Pharisees said that Israel's next anointed king would be from King David's line and he would be the deliverer from the oppression of Rome, then this king was, of course, the Messiah. Which means what? The anointed one. Again, no thought of deity was involved in that concept. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm in no way saying that Paul was preaching that Yeshua was just a man and not God. It's only that we're told that the first thing that Paul taught about Yeshua was a logical thing. That he was the Davidic king that had been prophesied. That's what the term son of God meant, especially to Pharisees in that day. And the Pharisees said that the Davidic king would be the Messiah. Now, even though the Jews in the synagogues of Damascus would not have counted themselves as Pharisees, all of the oral Torah, the Halakha, they were taught in the synagogues, came from the teaching of the Pharisees because all rabbis were Pharisees. Paul had an audience that could readily understand what he was preaching. The issue was whether they would accept it or not. I'm going to continue with Acts chapter 9 next time.